الحمد لله الحمد لله الذي هدانا لهذا وما كنا لنهتدي لولا أن هدانا الله وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له له الحمد وله الملك يحيي ويميت بيده الخير وهو على كل شيء قدير وأشهد أن محمدا عبد الله ورسوله وصفيه وخليله أرسله الله للناس نذيرا وبشيرا من يطع الله ورسوله وأولي الأمر من المؤمنين فقد رشد ومن يعص الله ورسوله وأولي الأمر من المؤمنين فقد ضل ضلالا بعيدا أوصيكم ونفسي أولا بتقوى الله وطاعته وأحذركم من عسيانه ومخالفة أمره أما بعد فإن خير الحديث كتاب الله وأحسن الهدي هدي محمد وشر الأمور محدثاتها وكل محدثة بدعة وكل بدعة ضلالة وكل ضلالة في النار يقول الله عز وجل وهو أصدق القائلين في كتابه الكريم إن هذه أمتكم أمة واحدة وأنا ربكم فاعبدون وتقطعوا أمرهم بينهم كل إلينا راجعون Brothers and sisters committed Muslims These two ayat are from Surah Al-Anbiya Numbers 92 and 93 Roughly translated they mean Indeed this community of yours This ummah of yours Is one ummah One community Since I am your sustainer and so it is incumbent upon you to conform unto me of course this is Allah speaking but human beings tore apart this unity forgetful of the fact that unto, that unto me 
you are all bound to return. One interpretation of this ayah is that it refers to all of mankind. That all of mankind is one community. But human beings destroyed that unity, not cognizant of the fact that at some point in their future an accountability will take place. In the world of today, many informed Muslims realize that the root cause of all war and conflict is the nation-state system. By the very nature of that system, it appears that war and conflict is inevitable. Some of these Muslims even go on to say that because of the inevitability of this conflict that all states share some degree of complicity and responsibility in initiating and escalating conflict. Ultimately conflict that degenerates into war. At the same time all of us realize that any nation-state in a nationalistic type of orientation aggresses not only upon its own people but it also aggresses upon innocent civilians in other nation-states. And the Muslims are not unique in understanding this consideration. The Marxists and the Libertarians and others, they also agree that the root of all conflict is the nation-state system. But the problem is that the Muslims stop right there. They say that the nation-state system is the problem, Islam is the answer, and they go no further than that. But simply mouthing this kind of slogan is just enough to make us irrelevant in the realm of ideas and in the domain of public policy and in the domain of politics. I think that we Muslims, we actually like slogans. It gives us the sense of satisfaction that we are actually doing something Unfortunately, the downside is that this sense of satisfaction blinds us to the reality that we are rather shallow in the way that we approach the world today. The fact of the matter is that parroting slogans about universal truths is not enough to deal with the reality that we are living today. It falls short 
of enlightening us to the responsibilities that we have to change a bad situation into a good one. And lastly, simply by spouting slogans, we make ourselves used to the fact that there are more than underlying root causes. There are causes, secondary causes, which are specific to a particular conflict. And it is our responsibility not only to understand these secondary causes, but to be able to do something about them. For within the nature of conflict, one party, one side, is always more guilty than the other. And this is the side that is prone to aggression. It is prone to conquest and colonization. And since over the past several weeks, we have been discussing the history and the importance of the Holy Land, let us take a look at the Holy Land as an example. Let us try to go beyond the simple slogan that the nation state system is responsible for, for conflict. Let us try to understand some of the secondary causes that led to a permanent crisis in the Muslim East. And obviously we don't have enough time here today to do an exhaustive analysis of this cause and effect relationship insofar as it pertains to the Muslim East and to the Holy Land. And so we'll just look at it in sort of an overview fashion. After World War One and the collapse of the Ottoman Sultanate, the predominant imperial power in the world was the British Empire. And at the time, it promised independence to the Arab, to the Arabian secessionists. These are the treacherous Arabians of the Gulf. It promised them independence. And at the same time, it promised European Zionists a homeland in Palestine. Now these two promises were not on the same moral plane. For in the first instance, it promised independence to a people on a land that they already owned. The Arabian Peninsula already belonged to the Arabs. The Levant, that is today's Lebanon, Jordan, Palestine, Syria, that already belonged to the Arabs. And so in a sense, promising something that already belongs to you in a manner of independence is something like is something like giving a present to somebody on a birthday 
who has already received hundreds of presents already. Meaning that it is irrelevant. On the other hand, they made a promise to award some land to a people that were not residents of the land and that were also foreigners to the land. The European Zionists had no connection with the Holy Land of Palestine and yet they were promised by the British this Holy Land. And as I said, the two promises were not on the same moral plane. In one instance, you're promising land that doesn't belong to somebody. And on the other hand, you're giving land that already belongs to somebody back to them. Now, as we know in the way that history unrolled, that the British Empire only kept one promise. And the reason that it kept the one promise and went back on the other one is that awarding the land, the holy land to the Zionists would keep their imperial presence in the Muslim heartland. For awarding the Arabians their own land would mean that the British would have to leave. There would be no point to them staying because the people are on their own land. But if you give somebody else's land to an interloper, to a foreigner who doesn't belong there, then that foreigner needs your support from the outside to stay there. And so they chose to give the Holy Land to the Zionists because it ensured that their imperial presence would remain in the heartland of the Muslims. And so this also ensured that Zionism as a political ideology had to become an ideology of conquest because the indigenous inhabitants of the land and the land did have inhabitants, the Palestinians, the indigenous inhabitants of the land were still there and so what the British did is to seize large tracts of the Holy Land and expropriate them, award them to these Zionist immigrants that were coming from Europe. And to be fair to this subject, at the time that this was happening, there was not only one kind of Zionism, the militant Zionism that we are aware of today and that we have experience with today. At that time, there was cultural Zionism, there was Christian Zionism, there was Jewish Zionism, there was political Zionism, there was religious Zionism. There were all these kinds of different kinds uh, of Zionism. But in the end, the one that won out, and it was largely through the influence of U.S. politicians, U.S. executives, that the militant brand of Zionism won out. And so in 1942, right here in New York at the World Zionist Convention a homeland for the Jewish people in Palestine was adopted as a resolution and so it's no coincidence 
that this took place right here in the United States. For Christian Zionism emerged from the United States. Within the evangelical community of pro uh, within the evangelical community which we all know to be a denomination within the Protestant sect of Christianity. The whole notion of a land without a people for a people without a land emerged right here in the United States. It began to gain popularity after the US Civil War. And obviously it began to pick up momentum when the concept of militant Zionism began to gain popularity in Europe. There was also the shared experience here in the United States. Because in the US, it was a particularly unique kind of imperialism. And the imperialism that formed the United States, it was based on the ethnic cleansing and the extermination of the indigenous population. Not all imperialisms are like that. British imperialism in India didn't exterminate all of the local population. It enslaved them, but it didn't exterminate them. And this rung true with the Zionists in Palestine. Their desire was to ethnically cleanse or exterminate the local population. And so there was sort of a one-to-one -one and a sanguine relationship between the Christian Zionists in the United States and the Jewish Zionists in the Holy Land or the Jewish Zionists in Europe. A kind of synergy. After World War II, the holdings of the British Empire faded rapidly. The British Empire was exhausted after World War II, and so it threw the ball to the United, to the United Nations. It sort of impelled the United Nations to solve this problem. And when you hear United Nations, obviously the United Nations was in New York. So in a sense, the United Nations is a synonym for the United States. So in effect, the British threw the ball to the United States. And so under intense pressure from the US presidential administration at the time, it was the Truman administration, and it was mostly pressure from the president himself because there were many cabinet members in his administration that disagreed with him in recognizing the newly emerging state of Israel, the, new, the, new, the newly emerging Zionist enterprise in Palestine. But this particular president, being from the South, I believe he was from Mississippi, he was particularly attuned to evangelical dogma. And thus, he was very much attuned to the return of Jews to Palestine. He didn't have any sort of uh, great appreciation for Jews, nor did most Americans, and nor did most Europeans. But insofar as the evangelical community in the United States is concerned, it's a relationship of utility. 
In their particular dogma, especially with regard to the end times, the last days, they feel that before the second coming of Christ takes place, that all the world's Jews, something like 13 million of them, will have to be ingathered in the Holy Land. And so they feel that if we sort of help this process along, that it will hasten the return of Christ back to earth. But what they don't tell you is that when Christ does come back to earth, that the majority of these 13 million Jews, except for 100,000, are going to be killed. And the rest of them are going to be enraptured into Christianity. What could be more anti-Semitic than that? That the Prince of Peace is going to come and kill close to 13 million Jews. But yet this is what they believe. And this particular president, 1947, he was attuned to this dogmatic orientation. And so under intense pressure from his administration, the UN approved, the United Nations approved a partition plan for Palestine. And approved this in November of 1947. And ultimately it led to the Declaration of Independence by the Zionists in May of 1948. Now the, now the United Nations awarded half of the land that was th at that time known as Palestine to a basically negligible population. These people actually didn't live there. Most of them had not even emigrated to Palestine at this point. And yet half of the Holy Land was awarded to this sort of non-existent population of Zionists that were in the process of moving there. Now in order to change this demographic, the Zionists employed a whole suite of murderous tactics. In the first instance, they went and they bombed their own people, Jews, and the surrounding Arab countries. They bombed these Jews in order to terrorize them to transfer over to the new, to the new Jewish state. And not only did they bomb them, but they put out the propaganda that it was the indigenous population the local Arabs that were bombing their Jewish neighbors. That these Arabs, these Muslims, had a visceral and an unconquerable hatred for Jews. That this is something that they're born with. And they spread this propaganda all over the world in order to get sympathy for their cause and their desire for these Arabian Jews to transfer over 
to the Jewish state. In addition to that, they engaged in the ethnic cleansing of the local population. Not only did they kill and murder and bomb, but as a matter of institutional policy, they went and they raped on purpose, intentionally, the Muslim Arab women and the Christian Arab women who happened to be indigenous residents of the Holy Land. And once again, they did this with a desire to terrorize the people into leaving their homes. And the full story of the number of women, mostly Muslim women, who were raped and humiliated has not been told. And perhaps that story will never be told because not only did they rape these women, but they killed them to prevent them from associating the authorities with these crimes. And obviously women and children are unarmed. They are the members of society who are least able to defend themselves. And I wish this would be considered as part of the Me Too culture. In the form of perhaps retroactive penalties and reparations that these people are due. In addition to the ethnic cleansing and the bombing of Arabian Jews, there was a concerted policy by Zionist paramilitary units, and I'm sure you've heard the names, names like the Haganah, the Irgun, the Stern Gang, and others. Later on, they became the Israeli Defense Forces and the Mossad and the Shin Bet, that they were ordered by those who would later on go on to become prime ministers of the Jewish state. They were ordered by these would-be prime ministers to go and uproot the villagers, to humiliate them, to expel them, and then to get rid of the evidence of the places that they ever lived in. They were ordered to burn down the villages, to raise them to the ground. And I'm sure that you've heard of many of the massacres that took place at the time. And I wish we had time to go into them. And then lastly, and this news is just coming out, that these Zionist soldiers, these Zionist paramilitary units, who were armed with automatic weapons, they were told to pick off Palestinians that they would see working in the fields, Like the people here in the Wild West, West picked off the buffalo. And once again, brothers and sisters, this is not a coincidence. The experience of picking off and exterminating the buffalo in the plains of the Midwest here in the United States. And then translating that into exterminating the indigenous population of humans that lived here in the Americas. 
It was that experience that was translated into these Zionist paramilitary units picking off Palestinians in the field as if they were sitting ducks. They were just told to shoot at sight and at will people that they would see who they would know to be Palestinians. And once again, the true magnitude of this crime has not been recorded because the people who would report the crime have been either dead or assassinated for over 60 years. As I said, we don't have enough time to go into all of these details. The fact, of the, the fact of the matter is, the point is, that what was going on a hundred years ago is still going on today. The aggressors at that time are the same as the aggressors today. For heaven's sake, their names even haven't changed. And the victims at that time were the Muslims of the Holy Land and the surrounding area, and the victims today is the entire mass of Muslims all across the world. And so these petty slogans that the nation-state system is the problem and that Islam is the answer. This is not enough. For while we are spouting and parroting these slogans, there is a deal of the century that's going down. Just last week, the crown prince and the would-be king of that degenerate kingdom in Arabia was involved in a secret meeting with the prime minister of the Zionist entity and the Jordanian royal palace. And no doubt there he was told, he was reminded that all of his privileges and the security of the royal family come by courtesy of Israel and the United States. And that now he has the job of upping the bribes that he's going to be giving to pliable Palestinians to declare themselves as Jordanians. They're going to have him push the program that there is no such thing as a Palestinian. That all of them have to move either to Jordan or to some of the other surrounding Arab countries. And that the Palestinian identity never existed and never shall exist in the future. And they should all become naturalized citizens of Jordan. And give up on the right of return altogether. And this is why he told the Palestinians to shut up. But this is not it. There is a worldwide full court press going on insofar as this particular issue is concerned. And that's why I'd like you to focus on the deeper causes of this particular and specific conflict. Just yesterday, right here in the United States, the House Subcommittee on Foreign Affairs passed a measure that would give the Trump administration wide latitude in punishing 
those companies that either boycott or promote the boycotting of goods and services from Israel. To the extent that such companies or the executives in such companies could receive a 20-year sentence and up to a $1 million fine. So if a university decides that it's going to boycott seminars in Israel, it could be punished by the White House to the tune of either $1 million or 20 years in jail. And again, this is with a view to stop the boycott, divestment and sanctions campaign which, are, which is taking place across the world against the Zionist colonizers and usurpers of the Holy Land. In addition to that, and it gives this particular speaker great pain to have to talk about this in public. In other times, I would reserve comment on this in public. But the issue is so critically important that it deserves mention in a public forum. So that these people can be held accountable by their communities. For what they are doing to not only abandon the Muslims of Palestine, the Muslims of the world, but what they are doing to abandon their commitment to Allah and His Prophet. They're prominent Islamic figures. As I'm, I'm mentioning, it's a, it's a worldwide full court press to execute this so-called deal of the century, to make it into a reality. They're prominent Islamic personalities all across the world. Now, I'm not going to mention any names. When you go home, you can put two and two together. But there are prominent Islamic personalities all across the world who are being conscripted into service to rubber stamp the final and the complete Arabian capitulation to the Zionist project in Palestine. One of them is a prominent Palestinian scholar who, to give him credit, has given excellent presentations on the, on the issue of sectarianism and on the nature of Muslim history at the very beginning. Another one of these people or these persons are some representatives of the Nur party in Egypt. The Nur party is the Salafi party in Egypt and it is priming itself for cabinet appointments in the Sisi administration. One of its members or a few of its members have had private meetings with Zippy Livni who was the ex-foreign minister of the Zionist entity. Another one of these people A prominent Sufi from Yemen, a prominent Islamic scholar from Egypt, both went to Al-Quds, but so that they wouldn't receive a backlash 
from their own people. They had the Israeli government issue them visas that would not be stamped on their passport. What did they think? Their people are not going to find out? What did they think? That in public forums like this that we're not going to advertise that they went over to the enemy and is breaking bread with the enemy? The enemy that is killing Palestinians? That is the enemy that is murdering unarmed medics and children and bombing hospitals? There's a prominent Islamic personality in the United States that is partnering with the State Department and the United Arab Emirates ultimately with a view to seeing to completion this deal of the century. There was those so-called Muslims who were connected to the CIA that were involved in the coup attempt in Turkey in 2016. They are breaking bread with the Nur party in Egypt. Again, with a view to seeing this deal of the century reach fruition. And then finally, there's a prominent Arabian television da'i, they call him the TV da'i. He had the nerve to come out and say that Al-Masjid Al-Aqsa was built on Jewish territory. Doesn't he know that Al-Masjid Al-Aqsa predates the emergence of those people who today claim to be Jews? Doesn't he know that it predates those people in today's world who claim to be Muslims? That Al-Masjid Al-Aqsa existed long before the Arabian Muslim Islamic expansion out of the Arabian Peninsula? He's an Arab for heaven's sakes. Doesn't he know this history? Why does some khatib in the United States have to inform him of his own history? So that he does not have to be an idiot in public when he's making comments in this manner. أقول قولي هذا واستغفر الله لي ولكم فاستغفروه يغفر لكم فاسترشدوه يرشدكم Alhamdulillah, wassalatu wassalamu ala rasulillah. Alam tara ila alladhina yaz'umuna annahum amanu bima unzila ilayka wa ma unzila min qablik. 
يريدون أن يتحاكموا إلى الطاغوت وقد أمروا أن يكفروا به ويريد الشيطان أن يضلهم ضلالا بعيدا I want to say a word or two about this Muslim ban, especially insofar as it is connected to this issue that we were talking about. Deeply connected, not just a parenthetical connection. This particular administration, in fact the head of the, uh, this administration, the President of the United States, when he was on the campaign trail before he was elected he intimated to his close advisors that he wanted a complete and total ban on Muslim Im immigration to the United States and not only that he wanted to stop legal immigration of Muslims to the US and then he also wanted to figure out a way to deport Muslim citizens from the United States. And so when he got into office, all of us know one of the first things that he did was this so-called immigration ban. Later on became known as the Muslim ban because it focused on Muslim countries. And according to his own chief counsel, Rudy Giuliani, the president himself used these words that he wanted to ban Muslims from entering into the United States. And so with this recent Supreme Court ruling, just happened a few days ago, what was meant in the beginning to be a policy that would not necessarily be a law has now codified Islamic Islamophobia into law. And so we have a white supremacist presidency who is backed up by a white supremacist court who feels it is okay to throw away all the founding principles of the US Constitution and basically rewrite a new Constitution. But this is just the tip of the iceberg. I know that there are a lot of Muslim activists that are protesting against this ruling and maybe in succeeding administrations they may actually get it reversed. Who knows? Nonetheless, as I'm saying, this is just the tip of the iceberg. In the United States, there is a legal history of excluding Muslims from the rights that accrue to every, every other citizen in the United States. And that legal history goes all the way back to the founding of the nation itself. 
in this legal framework, what becomes obvious as, as you begin to look into it, is that Islam and the Muslim identity is considered by them, not by us, is considered by them to be fundamentally incompatible with being in America. And I'm saying this is codified in law. This is not something that I'm inventing out of my head. This is not something that is just related to circumstances. This is something that is found in US law that dates back all the way to the founding of this country. So in a sense, it is in the very DNA of the history and the culture and the legality of the United States. Historical accounts suggest that at least two out of five slaves that were brought here to the United States were Muslims. Other accounts suggest that as many as four out of five of the slaves that were brought here were Muslims. Anything greater than three means that there was a deliberate attempt to focus on Africans of Muslim religion as opposed to Africans of other religions. And so Islam because of the slaves that were brought over here, Islam became associated with color or with blackness. And on the other hand, Christianity became associated with whiteness. To compound the problem, many of the Muslims that were brought here were very well educated, they could read and write. Some of the plantation owners that, you know, quote unquote, owned these slaves, they couldn't read and write. The Muslims are skilled in mathematics, in science, in technology, in culture, in literature, and whatever arts of the day existed at that time. And so much of the technological advancement in agriculture that took place here in this country, in its formative stages, when there was slavery. The improvement of farm implements, like the cotton gin. Scientific crop rotations. The accounting of what was sold and what was bought. Sort of like an organized accountant. What crops to raise in a particular season and what crops not to raise? What crops could bring the plantation owner more money? How to raise them efficiently? All of this work was done by Muslim Africans. They never got the credit for it. The credit was assumed by their white owners. But from 1790, until 1952, there was a law in effect called the Naturalization Act of 1790. And, and the reason I'm citing these laws is because my claim is that Islamophobia and Orientalism is codified into US law. 
from the very beginning. The animus against Muslims is codified into law. There are legal precedents that exclude and discriminate against Muslims at the very founding of this country. And so what this president is doing is nothing new. So from 1790 until 1952, for a good 150 years, the Naturalization Act of 1790 was in place and was observed. And what this act said is that no immigrant who was not white could not become a naturalized citizen of the United States. The United States is one of the last countries in the world that repealed a racial qualification for citizenship. That means that before 1952, most of the countries in the world all the power countries in the world had gotten away from a racial qualification for citizenship. But not this country. And so if you had to become a naturalized citizen of the United States during that time, you had to be white. And so even Syrian, Palestinian, and Lebanese Christians were excluded from becoming naturalized citizens of the United States because the authorities thought that they were Muslims. And by virtue of being Muslim, they thought that they're people of color. And being a person of color disqualified you from citizenship in the United States. So even those people were excluded. Except if they were able to prove that they were Christians. And when they were able to prove that they're Christians, the United States passed a law, a legal consideration, a Supreme Court ruling in 1915 that legally recognized Syrian Christians to be white. Now many of you have been to Syria. You've met Syrian Muslims, you've met Syrian Christians. Some of them as a uh, some of these Syrian Christians are as dark as Africans and some of them are as light as Norwegians. But yet this law in 1915, if you can stop laughing about it, this law in 1915 said that all Syrian Christians are white and thereby they qualify to be citizens of the United States. And so this is when religion became key to the formation of a racial identity. So if you're Muslim, you're a person of color and thereby you don't qualify to be a citizen of the United States. And if you're a Christian, you're white and you qualify to be a, to be a citizen of the United States. It goes back all the way to 1915, long before this current administration took office. So in a sense, the cornerstone of whiteness became Christianity and the cornerstone of blackness became Islam. And so to compound that, I've already mentioned that Christian Zionism emerged in the United States and that the president who was ruling at the time 
of the creation of the state of Israel was particularly disposed to evangelical dogma and so that brings us to the present that we now have a president who is only doing what the founding fathers of this country did he's not doing anything new he's just reviving a policy that at its very core is part and parcel of the history and the culture of the United States and so when he says America first what he really means what he really means is white first but he can't say that in public and so he has to couch that in national security and terrorism and all of those other slogans that are out there but because we Muslims are so disposed to parroting slogans we think that this is the truth and we almost accept it as the truth by refusing to be united with one another and yet this is what Allah Ta'ala says in the ayah that was quoted in the very beginning inna hadhihi ummatukum ummatan wahida wa ana rabbukum fa'budun that this is your ummah when it is one ummah and in this regard I am your one and only sustainer and thereby conform unto me and me alone so we so so if we accept this as a matter of our iman meaning that it translates from what gels in our mind into actions on the ground one ummah meaning that there are no political boundaries there are no sectarian boundaries there are no diplomatic boundaries there are no economic boundaries there are no political boundaries there are no cultural boundaries we are ordered to be one community and if we take this to heart we shall be successful but if we think that by the nature, the history and the culture of the United States that our equality with other citizens in this country and our civil rights as Americans ought to trump our human rights as human beings our natural rights as conforming subjects to Allah then I'm sorry to say we are going to see more of the same. Allahumma arina al-haqqa haqqan warzuqna tiba'a wa arina al-baatila baatilan warzuqna ijtinaaba Allahumma aghfir lil-mu'minina wal-mu'minat al-ahyai minhum wal-amwat innaka qaribun sami'un wajibu al-da'awat Allahumma rabbana atina fi dunya hasana وفي الآخرة حسنة وقنا عذاب النار ربنا لا تزق قلوبنا بعد إذ حديتنا وهب لنا من لدنك رحمة إنك أنت الوهاب
ان الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا ايها الذين امنوا صلوا عليه وسلموا تسليما اللهم صل على محمد وعلى ال محمد كما صليت على ابراهيم وعلى ال ابراهيم انك حميد مجيد اللهم بارك على محمد وعلى ال محمد كما باركت على ابراهيم وعلى ال ابراهيم انك حميد مجيد بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم والعصر ان الانسان لفي خسر الا الذين امنوا وعملوا الصالحات وتواصوا بالحق وتواصوا بالصبر ومن اظلم ممن منع مساجد الله ان يذكر فيها اسمه وسعى في فرادها اولئك ما كان لهم ان يدخلوها الا خائفين لهم في الدنيا خزي ولهم في الاخره عذاب عظيم ان الله يامركم بالعدل والاحسان وايتاء ذي القربى وينهى عن الفحشاء والمنكر والبغي يعظكم لعلكم تذكرون ولا ذكر الله اكبر والله يعلم ما تصنعون واقم الصلاه Allah'a kadar Allah'a kadar. Şu 